Amen. Thank you, ladies. Um, it's true. He is our hope and in all situations. And praise the Lord for that. As we prepare ourselves for the uh, Lord's message, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles this time to the book of 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 5 this morning, 2 Kings chapter 5. Second Kings chapter 5, and we'll be looking at verses 13 through 19, Second Kings chapter 5, verses 13 through 19, in a sermon that I've titled, Complete Surrender. Complete Surrender, Second Kings chapter number 5. It takes a lot to come to the point of complete surrender. Pride usually stands as a giant in our lives that is not easily defeated. And as much as we know that pride should have no place in our lives, especially as believers, it doesn't come that easy as far as overcoming it. Even if we see little victories here and there, true and complete surrender seems incredibly elusive. We see it as, as something we want. We, we know that it's something we need. And even when it appears to us sometimes be within our reach, it always seems to slip right through our fingers. Every once in a while, I'll give Levi a bath. Uh, we, we bathe him every night. I don't want you to think that we're just... But the majority of our, the time, it, it's Ruthie doing, doing the bath. So every once in a while, I'll do it. And, and I find it incredibly difficult corralling him once the bath is over. And he, he's our littlest one. He's a year and a half. So he, he really loves taking a bath. He's splashing all over the place, loves playing in the tub. But when it's time to come out of the bath, it's like trying to catch an eel. It's almost impossible. You think you got a grip on him, and then he just slips right through. And of course, he's got the biggest grin on his face, and he thinks, I'm playing with him, and I'm trying to corral him to pull him out. Uh, he loves every second of it. You wouldn't think it would be that difficult to get a one-and-a-half-year-old out of a bathtub, uh, but it is. It is grabbing, grabbing him is, is so much difficult. It comes to the point where I have to actually tell him, Levi, you need to stand up because he doesn't want to come up on his own. So I have to calm him down, tell him he's got to stand up, at which point I can make, it can make grabbing him a little bit easier. And even then, sometimes it's a little bit tricky. But it sometimes... Things that you think would be as easy are not that simple. Something that should be so simple can be incredibly complicated. And when it comes to pride, the matter is so much more challenging because we're not struggling against something or someone that is outside of ourselves, but we're struggling with something that is within us. You're battling desires. You're battling a mindset, an attitude, your very nature at times. Overcoming and destroying that takes complete surrender, which many people will talk about, but few will actually see. As we've been building up to Elisha's 10th miracle, much time has been spent discussing the requirement of the miracle that was made upon Naaman, before he was ever to see any healing. And the reason that we've discussed this in so much detail is because the entire miracle, Elisha's 10th miracle, all of it, it hinges upon Naaman's response to what was required of him. What we've seen thus far is that God's requirement of Naaman was not received the best. In fact, Naaman were told, as he was told what to do, to go and wash in the Jordan River seven times, and that after doing so, he would be made clean. 
Naaman was so upset, he was wroth, it says, and he went away in a rage. God's instructions there were so simple. Here's the river you need to go in. You came all this way from Syria to get healing. Go wash in the Jordan River seven times, and thy flesh shall come again in thee, and thou shalt be clean, he says. It was a test of obedience. God was calling Naaman to surrender to his will. If Naaman was ever going to see any healing, it would be only on God's terms. And quite honestly, why would Naaman, and why should he have thought any different? Everything was hinging upon whether or not Naaman was willing to surrender himself to the will and to the instruction of God. When it comes to the message of the gospel, I think the same is true. A person's salvation is contingent upon whether or not they are, they are willing to surrender themselves, their entirety of themselves, to the will and to the instruction of God. Will they believe on Jesus Christ as the Savior, as the only means of salvation, or will they reject him and be accountable for their own sin? As much as the gospel is an invitation for all to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, it is also a command. And that is why dishonoring and, and that, that is why it is dishonoring and disrespectful to God to reject his only begotten son. We're told in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 23, 1 John 3, 23, it says this, And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Two times in one verse, it speaks of the offer, the invitation of receiving Christ as your Savior as a commandment. God wants this. He's urging us to do this. When the Apostle Paul was preaching on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17 and verse number 30, he said this. He said, And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. The gospel is not just an invitation. It is every bit an invitation. But it is also a proclamation. It is demanding that we throw down the weapons of our warfare which we've wielded in our battle against God. It's requiring us to surrender completely, every bit of us, over to God and to do things His way. A person will never be saved until he comes to the point of complete surrender to Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter 5 and verse number 9, it tells us of Christ, it says, And being made perfect, he became the author of or eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Salvation is only possible through coming to Jesus Christ through the obedience of his gospel. We're told in, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verses 7 and 8, what will come to those who do not obey this call of the gospel. It says, And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord, shall, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, notice this, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. If people will not come before Christ in complete surrender, Scripture is very clear that they will be made his footstool. Obedience requires complete surrender. And this was the dilemma that we have seen thus far with this man Naaman, who up to this point was so reluctant to give in so much so that he was ready to go all the way back home to Syria without even being healed. But this would not be the case. As much as Naaman was bound and determined to stand his ground, to keep his pride intact, God moved his own servants to speak some sense into him. And notice again what we read in verse number 13 here in 2 Kings chapter 5. So he's been told what to do. 
He's been told back in verse number 10 to go and wash in the Jordan River seven times and thy flesh shall come again unto thee and thou shalt be made clean. He is upset. He's had an idea of how things are going to be done. It wasn't, it wasn't going to happen according to his own plan. He argued about where he should go because he said there are better rivers back home in Syria and Damascus as opposed to the filthy river here in Israel known as the Jordan River. And so he turned away and went away in a rage, the Bible says in verse number 12. And notice what we see in verse 13. It says, And his servants came near and spake unto him and said, My father, if the prophet had bid thee to do some great thing, wouldest thou not have done it? How much rather then when he saith to thee, wash and be clean. God allowed them, these servants of Naaman, to reason, in, reason with him in such a way that he would eventually have a complete change of heart. For notice what we see there in verse number 14. So they, they tell him, listen, you were expecting to do anything. If they asked you to do something extravagant, like climb Mount Everest, you were ready to do that if that's what they said you would need to do to see healing. Now they're just telling you to go and wash the Jordan River. Of course we've got better rivers back home, but this is the requirement. So why don't we just do it? And notice what we see in verse number 14. It says, then he went down and dipped himself seven times in Jordan according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child and he was clean. Until he followed the instructions of God, he was never going to see healing, but the moment he did, he was immediately healed. This was a voluntary act of Naaman. The same way it is a voluntary act of every single sinner who comes to believe on Jesus Christ as his savior. No one will ever be forced into heaven against his will. If a person is to enter heaven, it will only be through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Naaman had previously been unwilling to do things God's way. He was unwilling to surrender to God's instructions, but God moved his own servants to speak sense into him. And one more time, just before we go, why don't we just do this? And those servants, through those servants, Naaman overcome his reluctance. It was a huge step. This was a massive step because Naaman, was, Naaman had come to the end of himself. He had to, and he had to come to a place of complete surrender before God. Every part of verse 14 seems to point out Naaman's self-abasement. Look again at what it says there in verse 14. It says, then he went down. Then he went down. He needed to humble himself before God. And even in his going down into the river, even that was a picture of him submitting to God. And then it goes on. It says, he went down and dipped himself seven times in Jordan. So every aspect of this verse, you're, you're seeing him kind of humble himself a little bit more. He goes down into the river. He dips himself again seven times into the Jordan River. Over and over, he is, his pride is being broken down one step at a time. And as he finally submerged into the waters of the Jordan River, he was owning up to his own wretched condition before God, not just his leprosy, but his depraved spiritual condition before God. The fact that he was to wash seven times is also very significant, as it, as it is pictured the, the wretched condition of his soul and the need for it to be washed completely more than once. You only wash something seven times when it is extremely dirty. And Naaman needing to wash seven times was intended to show him just how bad off he really was. It's not just that he's covered with leprosy, which he is, and he's just going to die from that physically. But God was showing him in dipping seven times in the Jordan River that he was much more than just physically unclean. Spiritually, there was a huge transformation that needed to be done there as well. 
The seven washings was also necessary for him to show his complete surrender to God. It wasn't going to be good enough to wash six times. Only seven would be sufficient. It was already quite a huge step of humiliation for Naaman to get into the water. And he may have been tempted to only wash a couple of times and say, well, isn't this good enough? You know, what's going to happen after the seventh time? That's not going to happen after the sixth time. But unless he did exactly as God instructed, no healing would be seen. Some people will do everything they can to cut corners. They'll do everything they can to, to try and get away with a half-hearted obedience and say that they've done all that was asked of them when in reality they've only done a part of what was asked of them. And God was testing Naaman to see whether this surrender was complete or if it was going to be half-hearted. And notice again what it says there in verse number 14. It says, Then went he down and dipped himself seven times in Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh came again, like unto the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Now right in the middle of that verse is a very important phrase. It says, according to the saying of the man of God. According to the saying of the man of God. Now this may not seem all that important. We may read over it really quickly without putting too much thought into it. But it is there for a reason. Naaman didn't go wash in the Jordan River according to the saying of his servants, who spoke to him in the previous verse. He wasn't doing this according to the saying of the little maid who was captive all the way back in his home in Syria ministering to his wife. He was doing this, it says here, according to the saying of the man of God, signifying that this was a declaration from God himself. Naaman was responding in obedience to the word of God. Just like the sinner responds in obedience to the word of God and washing himself seven times in the Jordan River was, a, was, was him acknowledging that this is being done God's way. So it was Naaman responding here to receive his healing. He finally believed those simple words at the end of verse number 10. Jump back to what it says. In verse number 10, this is where he first received the instruction. Remember, this wasn't even from Elisha. This is from a messenger that Elisha sent out of his house. It says, And Elisha sent a messenger unto him, saying, Go and wash in Jordan seven times. Thy flesh shall come again to thee. And notice this, And thou shalt be clean. And thou shalt be clean. He finally was believing those words that were spoken. And he acted upon it. God has made salvation as simple as believing the message of the gospel and acting upon it by placing your faith in Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 10 and verse 9 and verse 13, the Bible says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. All who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. And the Bible says they are saved immediately. Just as Naaman responded to the word of God in obedience, washed in the Jordan River seven times and was immediately healed, so is the sinner that believes on Christ. God did not start a healing process within Naaman that he would see progressively over a period of time. He was perfectly and immediately healed that instant he rose the seventh time. And that is exactly the promise of the gospel of Christ. At the very moment a person believes on Jesus Christ as their Savior, Christ's perfect righteousness is placed, is imputed to that person's account. A person doesn't have to wait for his salvation to become full and complete or take effect on some later date. He is immediately the child of God as if he's a four-year-old or a 94-year-old, but the very moment he believes in Christ as his Savior. 
He has everything he needs. The very moment he trusts in Jesus Christ, he has everything he needs for heaven, whether he lives only a few moments after believing on Christ as a Savior or he lives another hundred years. The very moment that Naaman washed the seventh time in the Jordan River, he was healed just as the man of God has said. And now notice what we read in verse number 15. It says, And he returned to the man of God. He and all his company and came and stood before him and he said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Now therefore I pray thee, take a blessing of thy servant. When the grace of God is bestowed upon a person, it is evident. You see a change in that person. There's a transformation that takes place and it was quite the transformation for Naaman. I've seen the Lord change men who had some of the most vulgar speech transformed by the grace of God to the point where their former conversation is now so detestable to them they couldn't even imagine speaking the same way they once did. There's a noticeable transformation in those who have been saved because of how drastic it is. Look again at what it says there in verse number 15 and how drastic the transformation was just with Naaman. It says, and he returned to the man of God. He and all his company and came and stood before him and he said, behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Now therefore I pray thee, take a blessing of thy servant. Upon being healed, Naaman doesn't run back home to Syria as fast as he can to show his wife, to show his family that he's been healed. He returned, it said, to the man of God. The last encounter he had with Elisha was more of a non-encounter. He didn't even talk to him. Elisha didn't even come out of his house. He sent a servant, a messenger out to go and talk to Naaman. And Naaman was just furious at the fact that Elisha couldn't even take five minutes and come out and talk to him personally. So he didn't even have an encounter with the man of God. But this is the first person that he goes back to. And Naaman responded to that situation in anger. Again, it wasn't exactly a pleasant memory that he had with Elisha. But the first place he goes after being healed is right back to the prophet's house. He was angry that Elisha wouldn't take a few minutes to step outside and to speak to him and lay his hands on him as he pictured it would happen. But now that didn't seem to bother Naaman one bit. Now Naaman was not only acknowledging the God of Israel and that he is God alone, but he's also admitting that there is no other God like him. This once proud and haughty Syrian had been humbled. He'd set aside his pride to do things according to God's word. His pride had been completely destroyed. And he has seen the miracle working power of God firsthand. And not only that, but notice how he refers to himself at the end of verse number 15. He says, now therefore I pray thee, take a blessing of thy servant. Take a blessing of thy servant. He's talking about himself. All of a sudden, Naaman is a servant to the prophet Elisha. Now remember what's going on at this time. Look back at verse number one of chapter five. Because we spent some time looking at the resume of this man Naaman and who he is and who he's known for. He's a somebody back in Syria. It says, Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and honorable because by him the Lord had given deliverance into Syria. He was also a mighty man in valor. But those last five words are what cut him down at knees. But he was a leper. But all the other things are fantastic. And remember, Syria is the world power at this time. They've already come in and just ransacked Israel, taken captives back home to Syria to the point where there's a little maid from Israel who is serving in the house of Naaman. He's not a servant to anybody, certainly not to Israel. They're serving him. 
And he comes back to the house of the prophet Elisha in Samaria, in Israel. And he says, Now therefore I pray thee, take a blessing of thy servant. He's calling himself a servant. Declaring himself to be a servant of God's prophet in Israel. Again, Naaman, he was a somebody back home. All he has to do is to give order. And he tells people what to do, where to go, what to say. He's been extremely successful. As verse number one that we just looked at talks about in military, in every campaign that he's done, God has allowed him. God has allowed him to be the means by which he judges other nations. And Naaman enjoyed every minute, every minute of it. Naaman is an enemy territory among those he had previously battled, previously defeated. And now he's humbling himself before one of them. If he wanted to, all he has to do is to snap his fingers and give a command and the armies of Syria would show up and wage war once again with Israel. Perhaps an hour ago, he may have been inclined to do just that as he went away from the prophet furious and angered that Elijah didn't come out and talk to him personally. But since then, something has happened. Something so drastic has happened that he's now humbling himself before the man who should be a servant to him. The captain of the host of the king of Syria, the great man, the honorable man, the mighty man in valor, the leper, had undergone a radical transformation. Naaman had humbled himself under the hand of the almighty God, responded to God's word in obedience, washed in the Jordan River seven times, and had come forth a new man. The bitterness, the pride, the anger, the frustration in his heart, all of it, which had resented a way of deliverance that placed him on the same level as a poor person, a pauper, had finally been destroyed. The enmity of his worldly mind against God and his hatred for the prophet of God and Elisha, coupled with his own leprosy, were all left behind in the waters of the Jordan. And he came forth a new creature, cleansed and lowly in heart. He was no longer thinking that the prophet Elisha needed to come forth and pay him proper respect, lay hands on him and do anything crazy like that. Naaman was the one now going forth and humbling himself before the prophet as God's servant. Now we've stretched out the events surrounding Elisha's 10th miracle quite a bit. And the last point that we looked at, which was probably several weeks ago now, was the requirement of the miracle. And I want you to notice point number six here this, this morning. The sequel of the miracle. The sequel of the miracle. I want you to follow the, I want you to see the, the follow-up actions of Naaman after he was healed. And look again at what it says there in verse number 15. It says, And he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Now therefore I pray thee, take a blessing of thy servant. First, it says, He returned to the man of God. Not in vain, but to express his gratitude. And this time, Elisha comes out to meet him. He returned to the man of God, but second, Naaman is the first to speak, and he's the one to bear testimony of the true and living God. Again, he says, behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. Naaman didn't have to listen to all sorts of lectures on evidences of God's existence because when a person goes through such a transformation, he is made a partaker of God's saving grace. Naaman was now a believer in God. Naaman was as sure now as Elisha himself that the God of Israel was God alone. And notice third, Naaman's testimony was given in public for all to hear. Again, it says, he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, 
and came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. He gave this testimony in front of everyone that was there with him. He didn't just make the statement only to Elisha, but in front of all of his servants. The same servants who talked sense into him to follow the instructions of God and just do as he was told. The same servants who traveled all the way from Syria to now Israel. The same servants who were idol worshipers back home. The same servants who also needed salvation. Naaman was not going to be a secret believer in God, but was openly declaring that the only true and living God was the God of Israel. Now, he would have some struggles, and we'll point those out in just a moment. But he was publicly declaring God here. A man who had spent his entire life worshiping false gods back home in Syria was transformed by the grace and the power of God to see that his entire life had been a lie. And now he's finally able to see the truth. And notice fourth, Naaman wished to express his gratitude to Elijah completely overwhelmed with the grace of God that has just absolutely consumed him, destroyed his pride, cut him down on his knees. The first thing he can think of is offering gifts to Elisha for showing him the truth. The gold and the silver and the garments were no longer being offered as a payment for the service that he was given. Because remember, he came with all of these gifts, expecting to have to give this in exchange for the healing that he was hoping to see. But now he's offering all of these things as a gesture of his gratitude. He didn't know what to do, but he knew that he had to show some appreciation in some way. As he, and so he offers these gifts to help take care of the needs of the prophet. He's thinking, no, I know you have needs, and I know this is not a, don't look at, look at this as a, as a payment for some service that you gave me, but as a gift to help cover the cost of some of the needs that you have. And you can see his sincerity in how he offers these gifts to Elisha. Again, he says there, I pray thee, take a blessing of thy servant. He's coming before Elisha in complete humility. Not trying to, to pay him for the healing he's experienced, but offering the most sincere gratitude that he can for what has been done to him. And he just wants to be a blessing. Do we do the same to God's servants? Do we seek to be a blessing to those who are following in the will of God and to those who are serving Christ faithfully? Do we make it a point to offer temporal support for those that are ministering for God? By the grace of God, Naaman has been transformed into a new creature. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. He's returned to Elisha as a believer in God, and that truth cannot be kept hidden. The one who has completely surrendered to God, he, he can't hide that reality here. That inward change is going to manifest itself on the outside. If you remember the story in the New Testament of Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus came to believe on Christ, and that change in him was manifested in what he said in Luke chapter 19 and verse number 18. Verse number 8, sorry. Luke 19, verse 8, the Bible says, Behold, Lord, and this is Zacchaeus speaking. Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. The change in that man, Zacchaeus, was dramatic as he was used to taking everyone's money and just taking advantage of everyone by taking as much as he could. And he says, Lord, now due to this change, by the grace of God, everything is going to be different. I'm restoring to every man that, has, that I've taken from. I'm giving my goods to the poor. Anyone that I've wronged, I'm giving them fourfold back from how, I've, how much I've wronged them. A dramatic change in the life of Zacchaeus. We see the same in, in, in Acts chapter 16. And verses 30 to 34, as we see what happened with the Philippian jailer that was led to Christ by the Apostle Paul and Silas. He came to these men and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? 
And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night. And notice this. This is, this is him doing this to the prisoners, to Paul and Silas. He says, He washed their stripes. And then he was baptized, he and all his straightway. And when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. This man was so thrilled. He was so thrilled at the inward change that had happened, the grace of God that had consumed him as he surrendered to the word of God and believed in Jesus Christ as a savior that he needed to express his gratitude in some way to the ministers of God. Does our everyday conduct as believers manifest the love that we have for God and all that God has done with us and within us? There should be some change. There should be something different that stands out about us as believers that we've been changed by the grace of God. And I think some of us are walking around so discouraged, hanging our heads. You know, we, we might as well hang a do not disturb sign around your neck because no one better talk to us because we're just miserable all the time. Should we be miserable as Christians? Is there anything that we should be miserable about? Read the book of Philippians. By, you know, by, by all means, it says, through all circumstances, we should have joy, and believers should have joy. Don't let Satan rob you of the joy that you should have, no matter the circumstances that you're in. For crying out loud in Philippians, Paul is probably hearing the blade that is being sharpened to chop off his head. And he is still rejoicing. He's still praising God in all of that. Does our conduct manifest that all the things that God has done for us and the love that he has for us even in the craziness of life. And notice what we read in verse number 16. This is the response to the offering that is given. But he said, as the Lord liveth before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Naaman is a believer in God, and I believe that. I believe we're going to see Naaman in heaven. I believe that there was not just a physical change, but a spiritual change that took place in this man. And he desired to show his appreciation to Elisha in some way, and Elisha's refusing. God was teaching Naaman that this gift of grace was a free gift. God doesn't offer salvation with the expectation that we need to give something back to him in return. He gives grace freely to all who will receive it. It was for a truly noble reason, therefore, that Elisha declined the gift from Naaman because he would not compromise the blessed truth of God's grace. He didn't want to confuse a new believer that somehow God's gift of grace could be reciprocated or could be paid back. Elisha wanted Naaman to return to Syria knowing that the God of Israel had taken absolutely nothing from him except for his leprosy. Elisha wanted Naaman to return to Syria with all of his gold, with all of his silver, with all of the garments, everything that he had brought, he wanted him going home with it, convinced that everything was useless in dealing with the one who gave everything for nothing. God delights in being the giver, and more than receiving anything from us, he delights that we freely receive what he is giving us. David said in Psalm 116, and verses 12 and 13, Psalm 116, 12 and 13, he says, What shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits toward me? What a great question. What shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits toward me? What can we give to God in exchange for everything that he's given to us? I'll wait for an answer. No one has any clue as to what we can give to God from all the benefits that he has given to us, not even an idea. Worship? Is there anything, though, that could... Bob, you have an idea? Sacrifice. Sacrifice? 
living sacrifice. Notice what he goes on to say. So he asked the question, what shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits toward me? What can we possibly give to God for all that he has done for us? And notice what David says. David says this, I will take up the cup of salvation. I will take the cup of salvation and will call upon the name of the Lord. So David is he's trying to figure out what he can give to God from all that God has given to him. How can he show appreciation to God? And what he figures out that is going to please the Lord the most, you know what it is? To receive more of what God has given him. I will take the cup of salvation, he says, and call upon the name of the Lord. By Elisha declining the gifts from Naaman, he's showing him that God doesn't need anything from us. Naaman, still very new to all of this, would insist that Elisha take something. Now, God does desire our worship. God does desire our obedience. Absolutely. So I don't want you to mistake that that is absolutely what we should be doing. But as far as coming at him with an idea that we can render to this, render to him as far as what he has done for us, there's no thing that we can give in exchange for what he has done for us. Notice what we see in verse number 17. His Naaman is still struggling with this. He's a young believer, not fully comprehending all this. And Naaman said, Shall there not then, I pray thee, be given to thy servant two mules burden of earth? For thy servant will henceforth offer neither burnt offering nor sacrifice unto other gods, but unto the Lord. Now, Naaman had come to believe in the one true living God, and now all the false gods that he has previously worshipped back home in Syria have been rejected. He's just dismissed them because not one of them have done for him what the God of Israel has done. Everything about Naaman has changed, and he continues to demonstrate this attitude of humility before the prophet of God. And I want you to notice once more, verse 17, the language there, because he refers to himself in, in such a unique way. In verse number 17, once more, he says, And Naaman said, Shall there not then, I pray thee, be given to thy servant two mules burden of earth? Again, he's referring to himself as a servant. For thy servant will henceforth offer neither burnt offering nor sacrifice unto other gods, but unto the Lord. The pride of Naaman had been completely destroyed. Read back a few verses and you see the pride of Naaman at its highest. And a few verses later, he is now conducting himself as a servant. Here, Naaman is asking for some soil, some earth. Give me some dirt. This is what he's asking for. So that he can bring it back home with him to Syria. So that maybe he can make an altar to worship God. Or maybe he can, he can lay the, the ground there from Israel where God is God. And he can now worship God in Syria with the idea that he's worshiping God alone. And Naaman is thinking that if he spread some soil from Israel over the ground in Syria, that maybe it would become sacred. Maybe it would, be, it would hallow the ground, offering him a suitable place for him to worship God. Again, he may not understand everything just yet, but you can't help but appreciate just how serious he is about the reforms he needs to make. He wants to make sure that everything he does back home is right. He's also concerned with worshiping God, that he wants everything about it to be perfect and acceptable in God's sight. Is there not a lesson in there for us? What does our worship of God look like? Do we come before the living God with the same respect and reverence that Naaman sought to have? Have we forgotten how big and powerful and holy and righteous and just our God is? Naaman may not know everything about God, but the little he had learned in this short amount of time 
was enough to convince him that the all-powerful, almighty God should be approached with the utmost fear and respect. And think about how this appreciation for God was going to be seen in Naaman's life. He was determined to, to take this soil, take this earth back home with him. To have a place where he can worship God. Back home where he had an unbelieving wife. Back home where his family was unsaved. Back home where he had servants in his home that were probably unsaved and friends that were unsaved. As the head of the household, he was prepared to set the example in the home that only the one worthy of worship was the God of Israel. What example are we setting in our homes? What example are we setting in our church? What example are we setting in our workplace, in our lives in general? If God has a proper place in our lives, it'll be seen in our homes. It'll be seen in our churches. It'll be seen in how we conduct ourselves in the workplace. It'll be seen all throughout our lives. When we look at the following verse, there's a struggle. You're seeing a struggle within Naaman as he prepares to return back to Syria, a nation that is steeped in idolatry, knowing that there are certain things that are going to be required of him because of his position. And notice what we see in verse number 18. So he's just said that he wants some, some, some of the earth, some soil to go back home with him so that he can have a place where he can worship God and feel like he's doing it out of a place of reverence and respect to God. And then in, then in verse number 18, he says, In this thing the Lord pardon thy servant, that when my master, this is the king of Syria, his master, goeth into the house of Ramon, which is a false god, which they built a house, a temple for back in Syria. When my master goeth into the house of Ramon to worship there, and he leaneth on my hand, and I bow myself in the house of Ramon. When I bow down myself in the house of Ramon, the Lord pardon thy servant in this thing. Knowing that upon his return to Syria, he's going to be forced to perform certain duties in the house of Ramon, which is the false god that this house, this temple had been built for, he asked for the Lord's pardon. Now, since Naaman's knowledge of religion was, was steeped in superstition, he was still somewhat reserved to make this unreserved confession before the king. But he hoped that God would forgive him if he still outwardly fulfilled what his king required of him, even though inwardly he's worshiping the one true God. Now, Elisha's re response to Naaman is seen in verse number 19. And notice what it says. It says, And he said unto him, Go in peace. So he departed from him a little way. Now, I don't believe that Elisha is condoning this. But I believe that he knows Naaman is soon going to be convicted, that whatever practices that he was used to doing there back in Syria were wrong. So rather than rebuking him, Elijah left the conviction to produce its proper effect within Naaman, assured that in time, Naaman's faith and judgment would continue to mature, and he would take a more decided approach against idolatry there in Syria. But where is it that we stand? Where do we stand when it comes to complete surrender to God? Is it complete or is it incomplete? What stands between us and complete surrender to God? Often we hold on to certain things that we think we need, things that don't offer us any sort of eternal value, but we've come to value them way too much that we struggle to let these things go, even though we know they are what is holding us back. It's like we're dragging an anchor trying to go through this life. Or we've got a trailer that is towed behind us. And rather than moving ahead at full steam for the Lord, we're slowly chugging along, getting distracted all along the way. Now God knows the pride that stands in our way, just like he did when it came to Naaman. And as long as that pride exists, we're always going to be hindered 
from doing what God has called us to do. Sometimes it'll hurt and it'll be quite painful, but removing that pride is always worth it. And the extreme measures that God may take will all be necessary. It took quite a bit for Naaman to have his pride completely destroyed, but what a joy it was for him to come forth after washing himself seven times in the Jordan River and being made whole and a believer in God. He was thrilled to be freed from leprosy, sure, but he was even more thrilled to now be the recipient of God's grace. Even though he was needing to mature quite a bit spiritually, Elisha knew that his newfound humility would be the key for him to give God the space to work in his life and to show him the new path that he was to follow. The only way, as we're told there in verse number 19, is he gave instruction to Naaman to go in peace. The only way for us to go in peace is to come before God in complete surrender, to yield ourselves over to the Holy Spirit, and then allow him to be our guide and follow as he leads. Would you bow with me in prayer at this time? Lord, we are truly thankful to come before you. And Lord, I pray that it is in complete humility and surrender that we have come before you here this morning. We recognize, Lord, that all that we have and all that we are is only due to the fact that you have done so many great things for us. Lord, as we also consider, as as David did, what can we render for all that you have done? Lord, I pray that we would continue to live a life that is marked by obedience to you and to your word. Lord, receiving the blessings that you have given to us with joy, even in the midst of the craziest of circumstances that we may face here in this life. Keep us steadfast. Allow us, Lord, to follow the guidance of the Holy Spirit and remain faithful and true to you as you lead. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.